Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. We have our full panel. It's a spring election debrief panel, which means former school board member Claire Zauke is with us. Our current healthcare director, Claire, good to have you. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. Oh, hey, local elected. You know, it's local election season. So, Claire, just wanted to bring that up. We also have Robert Craig, our executive director, with us. Robert, good to have you. Happy spring, everyone, or Wisconsin spring. Oh, it'll be like spring on Sunday, folks. Supposed to be 100 degrees, I heard. So, folks, a big week. Uh, We are coming off the spring general election. And as everybody knows, spring elections in Wisconsin are nonpartisan and uh, local, mostly local affairs. We didn't have any major statewide elections. A lot of what went on uh, happened in your communities and just wanted to debrief um, and hear from the panel a little bit. I think the big thing I'd like to hear from the panel on first, and obviously you can all feel free to go in any direction you'd like, but it's following up on our conversation last week with Eau Claire School Board President, Tim Nordeen. And we were really talking about sort of this broader environment where Republicans and conservatives and the right wing part of that movement has really targeted these spring elections, uh, particularly school boards. And uh, in, in Tim's case, even leading up to a death threat. And so that was really part of the broader uh, uh, I guess you could say uh, environment going into the election. Um, And I guess I'll just say, it looks like things were a little mixed. Um, There were definite impacts, Waukesha, other places where Republicans had a lot of success. Uh, But there were a number of areas, Eau Claire, uh, where I just mentioned, uh, where they did not have any success and uh, voters really stood up and supported public education and pushed back against these these right-wing QAnon sort of based uh, movements. Claire, I introduced you as former school board member. You're particularly, you have a particularly important insight uh, into this. What What's your thoughts on uh, your top takeaways on the spring election, particularly as it relates to what I talked about, but then uh, let's, we can certainly talk about anything else if you wanna. Thank you, Claire. Yeah, so uh, I think we should start by informing our listeners that Tim uh, uh, won his reelection, right? I want to make sure I got that right, Matt. Thank you, Claire. He did win and did, as did the other pro-public education uh, candidates on that school board slate. Yeah, and so I've been thinking that you know, if the GOP were smart, um, and maybe they did this, or maybe I'm just imagining things. Uh, you know, they ran all of these sort of anti-education, um, conservative, often deeply conservative school board candidates around the state in these spring elections. And there were some places where they were more successful than others. So um, I think they were, for example, according to some news reports, at least I haven't um, delved too deeply into it, more successful in the Milwaukee suburbs, um, but tremendously less successful in some other parts of the state, like in Eau Claire, obviously, where they um, didn't, they were not successful in electing any of their um, folks to the school board. Uh, 
what I'm curious of is about talking about maybe is, is this sort of a litmus test for them maybe about where they need to spend more funds in, in coming elections, um, about where they um, can get some footholds and where it's going to be more challenging to get some footholds. Um, I, I don't want to, I guess, maybe waste too much time trying to um, look into a crystal ball and figure out what this means for the midterms. Um, but the optimistic point of view, I suppose, would say that with a, um, you know, hard, uh, a strong enough, hardy enough um, opposition, we can hold on to um, some, we can hold on to the voters and we can hold on to seats. And there are places where we know we'll have to, we'll have to work harder. Um, so, so that's, that's the first thing I'll say. Um, the second thing is, you know, and I've said this before, people often only care about school boards if they themselves have kids that they care about in the district or they are employed by the district. And so um, it's very often that if people like folks in the general public start to get involved in the school district is because they're riled up or angry about something. And it, it can be easy to, to sort of whip people into a frenzy about things that are related to schools. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to maybe on the other hand, maybe we shouldn't read too much into how things on school boards turn out, because like I said, it, it's easy to whip people into a frenzy about it. Um, but, but my biggest takeaway here, like I said, is that is that we can hold on to good people, we can defend seats um, if we if we work hard enough. As we transition to Robert, uh, one thing, Claire, just that I'll uh, mark uh, as we move into your looking to the fall, one question would be if they were successful in say Milwaukee suburbs, that is an area where Democrats have been doing better. And so does that portend poorly in the fall where some of their strategies may be having impacts in the suburbs? We shall see, don't know. Robert, your thoughts. First of all, we need to understand context. Uh, this didn't come because of a sudden uh, Republican and right-wing billionaire interest in school curriculum per se. This is part of a strategy to take over state legislatures and to win governor's races. And they created a blueprint in Virginia that was highly successful where they created the impression of some sort of horrible attack on parent rights and on students, uh, COVID restrictions and the made up critical race theory attack, which is coded for talking about race and diversity. It's not the real critical race theory. And so they were doing this in Wisconsin with tons of outside money, as our friend Matthew Rothschild, the head of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, has pointed out. Uh, and the, the biggest right-wing billionaires most politically active in the state, such as Diane Hendricks and uh, Richard Eline, just for example, and all sorts of alphabet soup conservative groups that are clearly just conglomerations of right-wing billionaire and corporate money. And it's interesting what ended up happening. I think that uh, the, the best, the, the, the most uh, useful analysis I saw was from Michael Ford, who's associate professor at UW Oshkosh. And he said, look, what the results show is, is that it worked in conservative areas. It didn't work so well in uh, ideologically balanced areas and it didn't work at all in democratic areas. So this is 
you can see this as part of the purification of the Republican Party, just as they're nothing like a Republican moderate in the legislature. Now, there will be nothing but the most Trumpy, full of Fox News and QAnon conspiracy school board members in very conservative Republican areas. And the question for us is, can they use these, gen up these controversies now because these the way the places they did win, like Waukesha and Germantown and places like that, these folks will now create new controversies by discovering new witches to try to burn uh, within school administrations and among educators. Or my, or and so, and it, they also I should add trans attacks on transgendered people are a big part of this. And by the way, I'd be uh, I'd be remiss not to point out that a lot of the campaign tactics were gross and awful things they said about incumbent school board members were crazed. It was straight out of Trump or the worst of Steve Bannon and Fox News. And I won't even go into the details, but this wasn't about anything like civil discourse. So we should be glad it did not sweep democratic areas and that the results were overall mixed. But we understand the political strategy still might be working to affect the legislative and governor's races. And it was, it'll still have a devastating impact in education. In fact, even in areas where we won, uh, that is we as in the forces of democracy and true education, uh, I think that it will make school administrators and educators and school board members more timid, and we may pull back on what we need to teach our kids about the actual true history of this country or prepare them to be citizens in a multiracial democracy. One thing I want to flag before we go to break, or um, Claire, give you or one final opportunity if anyone wanted to mention on Milwaukee, obviously, um, it was a historic election for mayor and that uh, Chevy Johnson was, will be the first elected African-American mayor uh, in Milwaukee. Claire, it's certainly big news. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, it, you know, it's a big deal for a, a city that is um, increasingly diverse, is increasingly um, a city of uh, people of color. You know, we deserve this, that at least the community deserves to be um, you know, led by an administration that um, looks like and can represent the community. Um, but of course, we know that that's not enough. And this is a mayor who's inheriting a lot of challenges, um, both, um, you know, financial, um, as well as, you know, public health and public sentiment. Um, so he is, he's going to have to do a lot of work, I think, to win the community onto his side. And, um, I, I hope that that includes a robust public engagement process so that um, his administration is responsive to the needs of the community. Um, I, yeah, I think, yeah, uh, yeah lot, there's a lot of work to be done. Absolutely historic vote. And we wish uh, Mayor Johnson well, look forward to working with him on some of these huge, huge things that the city faces. And there, look, there's real opportunity. Robert has talked a lot about our climate and equity work. Uh, we've had uh, Raphael Smith who leads that work on uh, to talk about this uh, real opportunity to over the next generation completely change the kind of economy we have and how it impacts everyone and that everyone has access to that economy. And so there's real opportunity for, for the mayor and we wish him well, uh, but folks, we gotta take our first break of the show 
you are listening to the battleground wisconsin you can find us on all the socials all the all the major socials folks facebook twitter instagram please uh, uh find us there if you if you're not there now you're listening to the battleground wisconsin welcome back to the battleground wisconsin before we move on to talk about some of the other major things that are happening i want to spend a few more minutes um talking about the spring election First of all, Robert, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, the historic nature of the Milwaukee mayor race. Well, it is historic to finally elect the first African-American mayor, and we're behind a lot of other major cities and having done so. And so that is very positive. I want to point out the complexity of what's going on here. In fact, uh, Cavalier Johnson has taken on something huge. And uh, you, I do sometimes wonder if, uh, if, if talented elect, uh, you know, elected leaders and political leaders uh, know what they're getting into fully. I think he does. I think he's a very bright man, but it, it is a little bit undetermined how he will approach this. Um, there is a lot of complexity in how he comes out of this race. Uh, well, it's very exciting that it's the first African-American mayor he came through without the um, active support of any of the seven African-American alders for complicated political reasons. They have to do how he became council president and therefore acting mayor. And in addition, without the support of the younger racial justice leaders um, in the city and the organizations that a number of people in our audience know. And so that is... Um, and there, so there are real divisions. The black community is not monolithic. And there was a real division over the question of whether we're actually gonna structure reform the criminal justice system as it seemed possible briefly during the historic George Floyd protests, the cresting of the Black Lives Matter movement or whether or not uh, we're simply going to, now that there's a perceived crime wave, double down on the old policies uh, that actually created a great deal of damage and didn't actually make us safer, but are the one thing that the voting public knows about for lack of a clear alternative being presented to them and that they understood and accepted. So Milwaukee has broader structural reform issues than that. We were a very prosperous city with the most prosperous African-American uh, community in the country in the late 70s, the new economy, deindustrialization, deunionization, um, which was a corporate conspiracy aided and abetted by politicians of both parties, that has made Milwaukee the worst place for African Americans to live. The worst African American wellness by 50 measures, the lowest per capita income adjusted for uh, cost of living of any of the 50 top metro areas more of the same being a conventional pol politician, and I'm not saying we don't know with Cavalier Johnson, will not change any of this or move structures. It will take a great deal of powerful leadership and inspiration to try to change it. His victory party was, uh, was symptomatic of the, we're not sure you had the most progressive leaders there, such as Representative Supreme Moore McCunde and David Bowen. And you had the developers who have been quite frankly, feeding at the public trough and, uh, and draining money that could be used to create things such as greater housing security or a whole lot of up to inequity for the people left out, it, who, uh, of which there are many in Milwaukee. And remember, austerity is part of what we call neoliberalism. And Milwaukee has been damaged as other cities have by the state pulling back on shared revenue 
each and every year and putting more and more on the city and giving them less and less and, and really flaunting the whole theory that we would use a progressive income tax at the state level and redistribute it to all the cities and counties and municipalities so they could have high quality public services. That's the real Wisconsin idea tradition. We'll see if, if Cavalier Johnson takes all that on or whether he governs the way the, la the, the last uh, couple Milwaukee mayors have. We just don't know yet. We're gonna be urging him to take the, 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 the bolder course. Claire, wanted to give you, was there anything else you wanted to add? Okay, well, I before we transition, I do want to um, congratulate a number of citizen action endorsed candidates who won uh, across the state. Um, I spent some time looking at it. Uh, it's uh, did amazingly well given some of the forces that some of these uh, candidates were up against that we mentioned in terms of the dollars and the money that flowed into some of these school board and uh, county board and city council races. Uh, but wanted to give a shout out uh, to, to folks who got through and, and won, including uh, Juan Miguel Martinez, who we spent a lot of time uh, uh, supporting. I had a number of members get involved, our Southeast uh, co-op organizer, Barbara Serta, Serta was there uh, canvassing uh, regularly on the weekends. And um, that campaign clearly uh, made a huge difference. You could see Juan Miguel had a nine point lead before absentee ballots were counted. And after that, I believe uh, it was like a 17 vote uh, uh, victory. So uh, clearly speaks to the quality of the campaign that was run on the field and uh, made a difference uh, in the final weeks uh, in that race. And so that's a shout out to all the groups that were involved in, in, in Anne Juan Miguel and putting together a good campaign and just wanted to, to state that and campaigns matter uh, in spite of uh, the challenges that uh, Juan Miguel faced in that race. With that, we got to move on and we record on Thursday mornings and it's a historic day. There's no other way to put it. Um, the U.S. Senate is expected today to confirm Judge Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. Claire, it's really kind of, it's hard to understate how important and historic this is. And uh, it will not strictly be partisan. Uh, there will be three Republicans uh, supporting Judge Brown Jackson. Claire, your thoughts? It's really exciting. Um, I, um, I'm, I I don't think there's like a, a ton to say because we've talked about her a lot before. So I'll just say um, it's really exciting. I'm glad that the um, process went um, actually like relatively smoothly, I think. Um, I, I know that her hearings were, um, uh, you know, emotional. There's viral clips of, you know, her interaction with Senator Cory Booker, for example. Um, you know, but, but really this, this to me seems to have run relatively smoothly and I, I was afraid that it, that it wouldn't, that there would be more, um, you know, consternation and attempting to, to block until after the midterms or something by Republicans. Um, but uh, really they, you know, they didn't have the votes and, um, you know, hats off to the three Republican senators uh, who helped make sure that that would happen. Um, so yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm excited to, to watch the swearing in ceremony. Claire, it sounds like in summary, you expected more Trumpian like behavior and it uh, <laughs> maybe it was a little less Trumpian and uh, yeah, Robert, your thoughts. 
Yeah, I I would not really refer to those three senators as Republicans. I think because we have a force, I know they are officially, but they are, we have a force two-party system in this country. I've written about and speculated that there's a proto-party with the Democratic Party, the Progressive Party, that might well be a separate party in a multi-party system, such as in a parliamentary democracy. I think there's a small little splinter party that controls the balance of power that includes those three Republicans, Romney, Collins, and Murkowski, and includes Cinema and Mansion, and that they are and that they are outliers in in, in their parties. Each of them, each all five of them. Cheney too. Uh, Cheney is ideologically More conservative, yeah, but yes, um, but she is uh, she yeah she's a little a unicorn because she believes in democracy but is a hard right person otherwise. But uh, but interesting, you're right. Her and Kinzinger is, are also at least not on not on the uh, the wagon train. So look, I, I take the believing in democracy part as a really important piece mm-hmm. <laughs> in this yeah. current age and time right now. We have learned to understand that is an important, very important piece. So um, the yeah. confirmation process was gross and it was connected to the QAnon conspiracy of child molesting. Matt and I used to joke every cycle how they were going to connect um, um, any candidate for attorney general in the United States or Supreme Court to uh, to, to, to sex crimes or 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 or, or child uh, you know child sex crimes. Now we have a situation where a big part of the Republican electorate believes that there's a ring of child molesters. It was created by a baseless conspiracy theory, and we have Republican senators going and invoking that and taking a record from Judge Brown Jackson that was very conventional in these cases and trying to, and, and successfully for their base, making it out something that it was not. And so just like in the school board races and the Republican tactics we talked about in the last segment, uh, this, is, uh, this is very troubling, but we do have the first African-American woman judge. Frankly, we're gonna need the Democrats to be a lot bolder. We need to win elections and then we need to both either limit the or both limit the size of the court's jurisdiction, which Congress can do, or add uh, Supreme Court members, which is entirely constitutional and which needs to be done given that we have an artificial majority. It doesn't represent uh, ma- the majority or, or the vote in presidential elections. The president's appointing Supreme Court justice, justices over the last 30 years. It is completely a matter of rigging the system. It's as bad as the Republican gerrymander in Wisconsin. Before we go to break here, I wanted to mention, and we can, if, if y'all wanna comment on, on the back end, or we can just let the stink bomb sit out for what it is. That is uh, Gableman. <laughs> Former disgraced Judge Gableman spoke at a Mar-a-Lago Trump event where he was praised. This is someone who's supposed to be leading an investigation of our election. Ah, unbelievable, but it's true. Uh, The Washington Post broke this. It's it's hitting the news this morning here in Wisconsin. But um, look, I think that train or circus of a sham investigation, we've discussed it a lot on the show. I think most people see it for what it is, but um, wow, this is just uh, unbelievable that anybody 
would think that that would be appropriate uh, given what's going on right now. With that, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Robert, wanted to give you an opportunity to just comment on uh, Gableman's buffoonery. Well, I think it's very clear that um, they don't intend even to look like they're having a, 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 an objective bipartisan uh, investigation. And that's why he would be so uh, so flagrant as to even when he's doing this investigation, go to Mar-a-Lago. This was designed all along by Robin Voss and the Republican kind of shark leaders, that is their political hacks who want power, who know this is all fake, but think they need to do it in order to appease Trump and the, and the Trump wing of the party, which is dominant. And so, of course, this actually serves their purpose because it shows that they put the right person in charge of this investigation for their base. And it's not going to matter how much hand-wring there is by people who, are, who, are, who, who talk about norms and ethics unless voters can, and they have to be persuaded, will turn out people in office who launch such investigations. And Rebecca Clayfish, the go, go, front runner for governor in, in, in uh, the Republican Party, has embraced this. How many voters who don't support this will vote for her in the general election and potentially make her governor? A lot of them. And so this is, a, this is part of the overall threat to democracy, the threat being it doesn't matter that it's so flagrant. That is the shocking thing. Not that it's happening, but that it doesn't matter. Well, there's still a lot of things that matter. Claire, I'm coming to you because we're going to head back to the federal government level here and talk about something that happened this week as it relates to the Affordable Care Act. And uh, it's around something that is called the family glitch. Interesting term glitch. But Claire, enlighten our listeners uh, what happened that brought former President Obama back to the White House this week and also saw one of our members go to the White House and be a part of such a historic event. Claire, what's what went on this week around the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, so um, the family glitch um, is a part of how the Affordable Care Act was um, implemented, uh, at least has been implemented up to this point. Um, and it uh, basically says that if um, somebody has employer-sponsored coverage that is deemed affordable, then they are not eligible for subsidies for purchasing insurance on the uh, or through the marketplace um, that was created by the ACA. That they don't get those uh, subsidies, um, but it it only was counting um, or in determining eligibility or not for those subsidies. It was only counting. Um, the cost of a single person and not if they wanted to put an entire family on their plan. And so it was making coverage artificially expensive or inappropriately expensive for folks who wanted to cover their um, entire, entire family. Um, so uh, in, in a nutshell, it's kind of a complicated thing, but it affected a lot of people. 
And it turns out that this was not actually part of the law. It was just part of the rulemaking process at the federal level and how the um, federal government was choosing to implement the Affordable Care Act. And so what uh, President Biden did this past week was um, announce that he is instructing the um, government in administering the Affordable Care Act law and the marketplace subsidies to um, change to fix the Family Glitch Act so that now the, the full cost of covering an entire family is taken into consideration and not applying, um, not, not disregarding those costs, I should say. Um, so this may seem like a small thing, but it affects something like over 5 million people across the country. Uh, it's actually a, a big deal. Uh, and it's a little bit of a shame that it took this long to get it fixed. Now, politically, we can say, you know, the rollout of the ACA was was kind of a hot mess at the very beginning. And so President Obama, you know, Roberts, I'm sure gonna have a lot to say about the um, about the, the political sacrifices yes, that thanks. President Obama made um, when designing the bill and creating the rulemaking process or implementing the rulemaking process that created the family glitch in the first place. Um, but, you know, it was implementation was a bit of a mess. And so, um, you know, I think he probably had his hands full trying to just get the bill, um, get the law off the ground. And then, of course, we had President Trump, who had no interest in trying to expand health care coverage to an additional five million people. Um, and in fact, was focused on rolling it back. Um, and now we have President Biden, who was part of creating the ACA in the first place, um, recognized this was a problem, probably through political pressure. And um, is realized it's something that he could fix uh, without Congress, that he could do it through executive action. The exciting thing here is that Citizen Action of Wisconsin um, has a member, Krissa Stenso, from the um, North Central Co-op, where the organizer is Joel Lewis, um, who got to go to the White House at the last minute to watch um, President Biden, Vice President Harris, and uh, former President Obama make this announcement. Um, and she is somebody who um, she and her family have benefited tremendously from the enhanced subsidies on the ACA marketplace since she and her family purchased their coverage through uh, the marketplace. And, uh, and so it was really very special for her to be there and uh, to witness um, the, the, you know, the leaders of our country trying to make the ACA better. Uh, really very, I'm just so happy for her. <laughs> it was so exciting. Robert. That was an excellent presentation. I won't repeat the what the policy was because people can rewind the podcast and re-listen to Claire's description. Um, I'll dicker with the name of it. A glitch is something that happens by accident. You don't use the word glitch when something is deliberate. And it was not something that was deliberate that was just a mistake, that they didn't know they were doing it. You have to rewind to the early Obama administration. He uh, during a, 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 an epic financial meltdown caused by the deregulation of the banks, uh, which did unparalleled, still much, much, uh, a lot of it, unrepaired damage to average people. And it, it stole especially a huge amount of wealth from uh, black and brown people who had struggled their way into the bottom rungs of the middle class, losing their homes, et cetera. During that time, Obama appointed a very conservative economic team, in fact, made the people that caused the crisis in the first place in the late Clinton administration, another Democratic president, 
by deregulating the banks, getting rid of stack, Glass-Steagall, et cetera. And so they were obsessed with not spending too much money. They limited the uh, rescue plan of that time to an artificially low number, which led to artificially high unemployment and condemned us to the 2010 whitewash election for Republicans, for which Wisconsin's maps are still gerrymandered and may be for another 10 years, thanks to the US Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court. This affected healthcare. Max Baucus, the Senate the Finance Committee chair, was very concerned about staying under an artificial number of how much, how much the Affordable Care Act could cost. And so were the Obama administration. They did it, they interpreted the rule that way to save money and left 5 million people who ought to have had subsidies to afford healthcare without them and thought that was somehow good for the economy of the country. It was certainly terrible politics. So I'm glad Obama was there. Now, I don't even expect Maya culpa to get, lend his prestige to doing this as Biden begins to lean into what he's going to mostly have to do outside of budget reconciliation and some of the big ticket items like climate that can still move. He is going to have to move to executive action. We talked about in a previous battleground Wisconsin that the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is unparalleled influence right now, has a whole great list that we support and our, all of our allies in the People's Action Network support. So this is the first example. The president, Biden, can do a lot. And we know in the polling that inflation and the perceived crime wave are big problems for 2022. The other big problem is the perception that Biden has not been able to accomplish what he promised. These, he needs to do a whole lot more of this by executive order. And I'm going to pitch, he has delayed ending the, um, uh, and, you know, re returning to paying interest on student loans until August. So he has ducked on the question of canceling student debt again. My hope is he did that so it wouldn't affect the spending he can still do in the Budget Reconciliation uh, Act on prescription drugs, climate, a few other issues, climate being an existential threat and has to happen. But then in, right before the election in August, he can do it and uh, cancel that student debt. And that would be great for motivating young voters and the right thing to do. Well, Robert, there, Claire, we got, we got the history lesson. And uh, so now we all know. Uh, one thing I wanna add is in a broader perspective here, we have always been supporters here of uh, Medicare for all and the concept that we, everyone ought to have access and we need probably some type of single payer, some type of way to cover everyone. But we, we also support what I would describe as sort of the more mainline democratic position, which is we need to protect the Affordable Care Act and then in build on it and improve it. And that has become sort of like, shall we say the centrist position. And this moment is absolutely critical to stand up for that. And this was a step in that direction. Last week we talked about we need to extend permanently the expansion of the ACA and Medicaid that is going to, the, the, uh, that, that was done during the pandemic. If that is not extended, those folks will lose coverage, maybe up to 14 million come October. These are all things that we need to do. And Robert, you mentioned the list that the Progressive Caucus has. Let's not forget, there still needs to be a budget reconciliation bill. So there is plenty of work to be done. We are gonna to continue to talk about that on the show. We are gonna to continue to organize around that around the state, look forward to more events around these things. 
There's a lot of work to be done in the next few months. Folks, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Headed in the, the, the closing stretch, coming down the final straightaway. Pick your favorite way you want to state it. We got our last segment here. Folks, I just know uh, you were a fan of the Masters, Matt. Oh, no. I, the stretch, I was thinking of the Kentucky Derby, or of course, you know, maybe a motorcycle race coming down the final straightaway. Claire Zauke's ready to lead us down this final straight. Claire, it was a report released this week. Not a lot of shocking information, but super important information. Super important information for anyone who might be going into public policy, thinking about how we can deal with structural problems. COVID deaths linked to poverty and systemic failures. Claire, big report this week uh, coming out of Madison, I believe. Just the highlights and how important this is to understand that we still have huge systemic problems in our healthcare system. Claire? Yeah, thanks. And actually, um, this report um, that was highlighted, if, if anybody wants to read the full article on it, um, it's an excellent article in the Wisconsin Examiner by Eric Gunn um, that came out on April 5th. Um, there, that This report coincides with another report um, that was put out by the Black Coalition Against COVID, which is a team of researchers out of um, the Yale School of Medicine and the Morehouse uh, School of Medicine uh, that talks about uh, sort of like the snapshot of what COVID looks like for uh, Black America right now. And um, what the report detailed by the um, uh, by the Wisconsin Examiner article basically found is that um, there is a tremendous disparity in um, COVID outcomes for people who live in poorer counties versus people who live in wealthier counties. And um, they, uh, they've tried to look at what could be causing these uh, disparities in outcomes. And they say it's not totally explained by vaccination rates, but it is often, um, or it is closely tied to um, racial disparities. And um, I, that's why I bring up this other report by, um, uh, um, by these researchers at Yale and, and Morehouse. So uh, we need to look at uh, poverty and we need to look at race and then think about what are the um, social and societal um, structural pieces that could be pe affecting people's uh, health and health outcomes. So, uh, for example, you know, access to uh, treatments, um, of course, like I said, you know, vaccination is a part of it, but, you know, also looking at uh, testing and looking at treatments, um, uh, ability to receive health care, um, to have supports around them to help uh, them stay healthy and um, in, in safe situations. So uh, these, these reports are tremendously um, interesting. So, um, look, this is highly disturbing. I think a lot of us suspected it, looking at things such as the racial disparities in COVID, since, um, because we have a structurally racist society, race 
and economics track very, all too neatly in American demographic data. Um, one scary thing about this, because we just assume that revealing this itself does some positive good. Another of my alma maters, the University of Georgia did a report, uh, I think it came out last week, that found that the uh, that news coverage that it was affecting poor people or black and brown people more actually encouraged white areas and middle-class areas and upper middle-class areas to act more heedlessly to ignore the pandemic because then they believe it didn't affect them. So sometimes these, these, they, they, this news should be put out. I'm not casting shade on the researchers. I'm just a cautionary note on whether it's always good in a society, in a, in a society with a massive amount of implicit racism and a willingness to allow people other than themselves in our society to suffer if they're not suffering, that it doesn't necessarily have the impact we're hoping. Now, as to those who it does concern, in other words, the whole diverse array of people under the Democratic Party from very moderate people to movement progressive people, the question is, we know that there is what is called politely in the healthcare world a health equity crisis, and there has been for a long time in this country. That is, whether you live in live or whether you die depends heavily on your socioeconomic status. You get worse healthcare, less access to healthcare, plus things like poverty, housing insecurity, uh, working in jobs that had uh, such as meatpacking. Look, thinking about uh, Latinx immigrants. That, ha that are very dangerous and have and big corporations that can flaunt any notion of safety during a pandemic or at other times as well. That all affects life expectancy. It's really racism in healthcare. Uh, and it, it, I'll be less polite than health equity. But in, if you think about it, most Democrats have proposed very little that would change the situation. I'm thinking at the state level, and I'm talk, certainly talking about whole parties as opposed to some individual legislators or members of Congress. And we need to get real. If we are really appalled that you are much more likely to die, not just during a COVID pandemic, but generally speaking, if you are a person of color and you are lower income, then we need to actually take do really hard things to restructure our society and to create a much more equal society. And we get a lot, we'll get a lot of of talk from uh, political strategists, never correct side, that just isn't possible. We're gonna to have to really, you know, try to run on inflation and being good on crime somehow. Well, that just perpetuates it because it becomes acceptable and normalized. And my concern is that this is normalized in our society. Well, look, I think one of the important points, and I'll just point out uh, Gupta Barnes from the Poor People's Campaign, uh, said it best, right? And it gets to what you're saying, Robert. Too often we blame the poor for what are really systemic policy decisions, right? And you see this playing out in crime or whatever, blaming, blaming, the, in, in, in we're going to over-police areas that mostly tend to track with poverty or race. Uh, and so it just says, look, too often we blame the poor for what are really systemic decisions that are outside of their hands, decisions that are made for poor communities, but decisions they would never make themselves. It was a good choice. Uh, it, it, it was, it was, but it was a policy choice, right? And whether it was white, black, Latina, native, indigenous, 
indigenous or all of the above. It was a choice to have these death rates and to not prioritize poor people across race, across geography, and in the worst public health crisis in this country. So that really sums it up, right? We are all in this together, um, but as long as we're gonna be divided by race and allow ourselves to not care about poverty, we'll continue to have these uh, systemic issues. Before we go, Robert, I don't know what we call this. Do we call this Ron Johnson watch? And uh, let's remember Ron Johnson's up for election. It's gonna be the biggest state's uh, US Senate election in the country. I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna lay it out like that. Robert, what did Ron Johnson do this week on Fox News, which of course is where all good things happen, Robert? And I will say the cable news celebrity, Steve Karnacki from MSNBC who has the big maps. He said that it'll determine control of the Senate whether we beat Ron Johnson or not. He's predicting a pickup in Pennsylvania, though that actually has to happen too. Don't, don't mail that in friends in Pennsylvania. But Ron Johnson's in full reelection mode. I happened to catch him at the top of the Sean Hattie show Wednesday night on Fox News, where great deliberations take place. And he was on there to talk about the Hunter Biden scandal and what it, and, and all the terrible things going on, how he's trying to get to the bottom of it and how the partisan hack Merrick Garland is preventing knowing the full truth. And the back and forth with the host, uh, Hannity, ended up with the if you want to make sure we get to the bottom of the Hunter um, Biden scandal, you have to, we have to reelect Ron Johnson and all of the socialists and libs are out to get him. And they gave his campaign website and urged the whole Fox News primetime uh, population to invest in Ron Johnson so we can get to the bottom of Hunter Biden where the real criminality is. Not, don't look at Trump. Look at, you know, Hunter Biden. By the way, they made a scandal of this week in the U.S. Senate that there's a lot of Secret Service money being spent to protect Hunter Biden. Well, I'm sorry, they vilified him. What, we're supposed to let uh, right-wing nationalists uh, knock off the president's son because they've decided to make him into a villain and falsely connect him to the president? Whether or not, whatever Hunter Biden's business practices, there's not a shred of evidence they have anything to do with his father. So there you go. I'll say that's why you should vote Ron Johnson out and work well, with us. Well, folks, don't don't be the bull that runs into the matador's phony, phony scheme and gets gets an arrow in your side. Pay attention. Don't be distracted. Stay focused. Listen to the Battleground Wisconsin. We'll be back next week. I want to thank our panel. Thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who makes the show happen every week, even when it happens from the couch in his basement, which looks like a rock and roll paradise. Folks, we'll see you next week at the Battleground, Wisconsin.